This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see death. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go. You want me to go f***ing trash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. All right, all right, all right. I'm drama geek and class clown Craig Anderson, and welcome to Film vs. Film. This is the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other, which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. Today, it's all about being a teenager, popping pimples, heading off to college, and trying to get laid. It's time (laughs) for Revenge of the Nerds versus Booksmart. With me today are my two best friends from high school, the friend who left us behind and went to a different city for uni, it's frat boy Herschel Isaacs. Hi Craig, hi Bruce. Uh, we've had a bit of a break, so it's wonderful being back again. Looking forward to this one. Thank you, Herschel. Also with us is Herschel's identical twin brother, the Ducks of our high school, and now the Associate Professor in Film Studies at the University of Sydney. It's King of the Nerds, Bruce Isaacs. (laughs) Hey, guys. The only thing I will say, though, is, Craig, I wasn't the Ducks. Herschel was the Ducks. Are you serious? Yeah, Herschel beat me in the HSE. But I thought you got the award for being Ducks. No, no, no. Was one of you, like, principal, what do they call it, captain of the school or something? Captain of the school? No, captain of our school was... For that, you had to be like those kids in Booksmart. I was the fir- we were the furthest thing from captain. Of the no, but that's school. a good. Who was who's the captain of our year? Who was the captain of remember. our year? I thought Bruce was like vice captain. No, Belinda Healy no was way. captain. Belinda Healy, I think, was captain of our class. Shout out to Belinda Healy. <laughs> now we went to high school in the sprawling suburbs of Western Sydney at the local high school in the town of Saint Clair, which is situated between Mount Druitt and Saint Mary's. And we'd like to shout out to one of the places that made us love film today. It's the St. Clair Civic Video Store. You guys oh, remember St. Clair? Classic. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I remember. That That was a, a, a smaller video store, and it was one that we used to go hang out in after, you know, like some people go to the library, which we did as well. Mm-hmm. Some people hang out at the shops, in the mall. We would hang out at the video store. Yeah. And I have such so great good. memories of that place. It, it was, was a brilliant place. And I remember years later, after I finished uni, come back to live in the inner west in, New, in Newtown, there was a Civic Video Newtown. You mm. guys remember on, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. on Wilson? Yeah. And then that was, for me, the end of a lot because that place then closed down yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the porno store took it over. <laughs> and so it became like an adult store. Um, and it was really a sign of the times of what was happening to video and then Blockbuster folded and all that sort of thing. Mm. But so that's when I think of Civic Video back then, that was just wonderful. The amount of time yeah. we spent there just looking at movies and saying, and looking at the VHS covers, so yeah. Craig, that's why you've got that massive collection. Oh, yeah. That was just the best. Well, I'm, uh, for people who live in St. Clair, before the shopping centre that's there now, there used to be a much older one. Mm. And if you go into Colliden, there's the shops there still look like the St. Clair ones. Brown brickwork everywhere, a weird central courtyard yeah. outdoors, and the small store of Civic Video, which was at the time just franchised to a, a, like a couple of residents. I think, so. I think there were really small franchises at mm. the time. Yeah. And so that place didn't have a huge collection. And it wasn't. It didn't have the status of a lot of other big video stores that people went to. Yeah. But it was just this one that people would go to if you lived in St. Clair. So I think it was a really local type place. I think we would go to like Franklin's, the yeah. the shopping center there. Oh god, yeah, Franklin's. We'd get. Yeah, remember. remember, used to be payless. Used to be called payless. Payless, 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 and then it became And we used Franklin's. to get the um, the raspberry drinks, and it was thirty two cents for a can of raspberry <laughs> drink you get after school. So you'd oh, go there, right. get your raspberry drink, then walk over to the library to the video store. Yeah, and it was a weird video store as well because, and that that goes to what you guys are saying about people buying these franchises and having the dream. People who love film or whatever, and remember they had an unusual collection. Mm. They had like a, a horror collection that was as big as like drama. Yeah, and that I remember seeing the cover of the thing, and I remember some of the movies that were there, and thinking this is a really cool video store, and it was cheaper yeah. than some of the other big video stores. I think that's where I first saw the Extro cover. What's the, that? The What's film Extro X T R O, and it's. Uh, is it British? Or is, it's got Mariam De Arbo, who's in um, Living Daylights. Like, yeah, yeah, she's in it, and it's a very bizarre sci-fi film. It's kind of surreal, almost from the eighties. Yeah. But it, the cover was this alien, like 
screaming, biting. It's kind of one of those iconic covers that scares mm, people. Yeah. Like um, the zombie uh, or the demons cover, yep. which had the screaming I remember demons. actress in it. Yeah, I think it also speaks about those um, smaller video stores. They had to engage in a kind of curation of a collection. Yeah. Mm. And that's what made those places more interesting than, you know, Blockbuster was okay, but Blockbuster was, they're going to give you what's, Expected. I remember you going to these places, yeah. and you'd find weird stuff, and and I really enjoyed that. It was one of the first places I remember seeing merchandise mm. because the other video stores at the time. This is early in that early eighties, mid eighties. Shell service station um, next to the Blue yeah, Cattle Dog yeah. in, on Banks Drive. Yep, yeah. that used to have I some videos. videos. I remember Michael Jackson's Thriller. The making of was there. But then this video store was the first time where I went. Oh, look! There's posters of things coming yeah. out on mm. video, and not just coming out in cinema. I think what we saw was that the people who owned um, Civic Video St. Clair, they loved videos. And that was the difference. You could see mm. that those people got that place, I think, because they they really liked movies. And we loved movies. So I think we found a place where like, there was a sense of belonging. I mean, it's interesting that we're going to talk about two movies today that is about belonging and identity. So we fit into that place. I found my Civic Video library card for St. Clair. Whoa. Do you remember it had Mickey Mouse from Fantasia on it? Yeah. And uh, was it like a, totally a laminated plastic? Laminated yeah, yeah. yellow. Yeah, mm. yeah. And, it's a, and they called it a library, video library back then. And I've noticed because I collect videotapes that a lot of them – in the early days, called themselves libraries mm, and mm. not video stores because they weren't sure what they what were. They were. And that they worked just like a library. You would be borrowing something and t- bringing it back and stuff. Yep. Today's episode will be full of spoilers. So if you haven't watched the films, too bad. <laughs> and I'd also like to add a content warning for discussions about sexual assault. Okay, let's get into it. Take one. First up on today's show, it's Revenge of the Nerds from 1984. Virtually unknown as a director, Jeff Caney helmed this low-budget teen sex comedy that ended up making quite a dent in the cultural psyche of the 80s. The film sees two male best friends and self-identifying nerds heading off to college where they are bullied by both hot girls and jocks alike. They've been laughed at, picked on and put down. I'm not kissing a nerd. They don't have the moves or the muscle. You know karate? I know. But they've got the brains. I know what we're going to do. It's time for the odd (laughs) to get even. Eventually, they find their own tribe of stereotype-fitting outcasts and are forced to form a fraternity. The fraternities ballot out until eventually the nerds win the power to dissolve the opposing frat houses and prove that nerds are cool. Revenge of the nerds. Their time has come. I drink to that. The film has a lot to say about social structures, especially the distinction between intellectuals and athletes. It clumsily juggles comments about race. I don't know if I'm editorialising mm. here. And presents a very non-contemporary text on gender. Despite being panned by progressive film critics of its day, the film went on to make more than five times its budget. It spawned three sequels that were spread out across the next uh, across the entire 80s and played on TV all the time when we were growing up mm. as children. This movie was always it TV. was a very. It was just a thing. You, yeah. That's how I knew what a nerd was. Herschel, <laughs> what's your take on this film? Okay, thanks very much, Craig. I have to say that when we first came up with the idea of putting Revenge of the Nerds up against Booksmart and doing the contrast, I probably wasn't sold on the comparison. Now that I've watched them recently, I I think they're two of the best um, comparisons we've so far come up with. So that was a that was a really cool surprise. This is a movie about extremes. It's extremes in every form you can imagine. So I'm not going to go into the detail of it because we're going to have a chance to talk about some of the, some of the more uh, costly kind of aspects of the film. So I'm just going to say a few things before I get into my hot take. When we talk about Revenge of the Nerds in the context of 2021, we think about a movie that was kind of like coming on the back of Porky's and, and movies like that where nobody took any of that stuff seriously. That, I mean, obviously, that was a genre to yeah. itself. Yeah. But this movie wasn't quite that. This movie was intending to be taken seriously. So that's an argument that I'm going to be making as we proceed. I actually think it is a serious film. Now, does it do some things <laughs> that... <better>? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Go on, does it do but some... you should see my face right now. <laughs> does, does it do some things that, that were a little bit crazy and, and also we're going to uh, see, you know, could be considered to be really offensive? Absolutely. But it does take itself seriously and it does have a message behind it. The other thing I want to say is it's, it's unusually sort of populated with some talented people. 
So as we know, Anthony Edwards was going to go on to um, bigger things with ER and 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 be Tom Cruise's sidekick yeah, in to- Top Gun. Mm-hmm. And Top Gun comes not long after this. But so. Anthony Edwards is quite interesting in itself, in, in himself, because he does a lot of writing. He made a bunch of independent movies. Do you guys remember Miracle, Miracle Mile? Mile? Yeah, yeah, Fasc- oh, a really fascinating, fantastic. strange movie. He was yeah. the, f- the main guy in it. So he was quite an interesting person. The person who did the music to it, and I've forgotten the names. I should have this. Uh, like the composer or the yeah. supervisor? Oh, the music's by yes. Thomas Newman. Yeah, that's so. Okay, so ah. Thomas. Yeah, so that's the dude my point. that gone to do American Beauty, yeah. Shawshank. So what I'm saying is, unusually, and I think people don't know this now because Revenge of the Nerds is you know, now considered to be, well, you can't really even speak about it or, or, or watch it nowadays, but... <laughs> it's, it would be a fully cancelled film. It would be cancelled. I'm going to teach it next semester. <laughs> but <laughs> it, have is, a great semester. it does contain a lot of talent. That's, that, that is a point that I want to make about this. So wh- I want to move, therefore, onto the main point I want to... But we forget, who are the, there's a lot of weird supporting characters. Like, isn't John Goodman the coach? John Goodman's yeah. the coach. Now, John Goodman is always wonderful. The dad that drives him, someone famous? That's, yeah, James um, Cromwell. James Cromwell. Yeah, James Cromwell. Because I remember watching it just recently and thinking, whoa, the, but these he's, people that's became right. so significant. He's listed in the credits as Jimmy Cromwell. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. But when he laughs with, you know, when they and do he, that yeah. laugh, <laughs> I can't believe that's the uber killer in LA Confidential, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is one of the most serious auteur films. Um, of, of an era and this is the guy doing the ridiculous third <laughs> laugh or and even just the dad in Babe you know the, the yeah, farmer oh that's yeah, right yeah. and that's all sort of stoicism yeah, yeah. that we associate with James Cromwell, with Cromwell but in this movie he's just completely larger than life nerd father <laughs> he's hacking it up yeah so we can't we can't forget so we've got, we've got an, a killer soundtrack um, Bowie, Quinn a bunch of other stuff from the 80s I think Billy Idol's in there We've also got, in my opinion, I think some really good writing in it as well. And we've got a very strong group of actors. I don't think at any point you're going to say, well, that person is a terrible actor. Maybe some of the, some of the supporting mm-hmm. actors, some of the, the side people, mm-hmm. you might go, okay, no, they I just agree. got thrown in. The They're not given much to work with. But there's though, a talent here. There's a talent pool here that I think I mean, is it sounds worth, ridiculous. I worth actually think Booger is he's a uh, genius. <laughs> is, is oh, just, I was going to end on Booger. He's actually and then you've Kurt, got Booger. Curtis Armstrong, I'm just reading here, yeah. uh, as Dudley Booger Dawson. <laughs> um, uh, I gotta say, I watched it quite carefully. His timing yeah. is spot on. He, sure, he, he can really bring out a laugh. And he's got the deadpan humor. Sometimes as well. the script, I think, is like more. Uh, you know, at times it's kind of pretty formulaic, pretty pedestrian. But just sometimes with the performance, you know, someone like Booger, he brings out a laugh where it it need not have been <laughs> that way. <laughs> I think Booger is exceptional. <laughs> um, here's my take. I think Revenge of the Nerds is about a time of disenfranchisement and not belonging. And it represents that, the trope that we grew up with. So when I watch Revenge of the Nerds, I'm not saying we were subject to that kind of abuse. And there's some really <laughs> terrible there's some really terrible depictions of abuse in this mm-hmm. film. And we I don't think we were subject to that. But we certainly understand what it was like to be um, you know, uh, disenfranchised or to be closeted in a certain way, defined in a certain way, that you were the other and that you didn't fit in with what was considered to be the dominant, correct, mm. or the cool, or, or whatever the pop- it is. The popular, the popular. I think. Well, I must think between popular and not popular. That's, I think that's yeah. true. I think we um, fit the idea of nerds that this film created mm. in the 80s. Because before that, I'd only think of the white nerd, the computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so that's the point I want to make here. So yeah. we have, um, we have a, a gay guy. In the group, we've got Booger, who's like the gross, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you've got um, <laughs> the, the, the sensitive, you've got the young, the, the young child, the nerd, the, the, the genius. Yeah. You've got um, the Asian person who gets made fun of because he's Asian, but they accept him into their fold. Yeah. So we do have an attempt at just representing acceptance. Mm. So if it's done I mean, ironically, there's a kind of attempt at diversity, right? Exactly. But, yeah. but, exactly. but, then, but then the big political question becomes, are these really representations that are meaningful? Or are we talking about insane caricatures? Because the way they all get elevated <laughs> to... An, uh, the only person that escapes this is Anthony Edwards, and he becomes kind of the voice of the film, right? But all the others, the way they act, they so caricature that they become kind of comical parodies of themselves. I see the back, the world of Back to the Future. I mean, I reference Back to the Future all the time because I love it so much. But Biff Tannen is the jock. You know, they've got the jock year. You've got the coach who, you know, we could say that's a 
aspects of him out of the Wonder Years. So there are lots of things that are very familiar to us, and that's what Revenge of the Nerds is doing. It's presenting a black and white picture of, of what morality is, that you should be inclusive, that you shouldn't be abused or taken advantage of. And for me, that's the key contrast with Booksmart. And I know, Bruce, you're going to be speaking mm. to Booksmart, but that's what I can't find in that. I don't quite know what the postmodernist um, definition of that is. Mm. So in Revenge of the Nerds, it's very clear what's right and wrong. Now, whether that's, that's good or bad, whether itself, whether that itself is right or wrong is complex. But it does wear its heart on its sleeve and says this is, you know, it's better to be nicer to these people, to accept these people. I mean, look, I, I agree that a movie like this could have been valuable for a lot of people at the time. Because I even remember us growing up in school and we're growing up around this time. And... It was uncomfortable for a lot of people to kind of be perceived to be bookish, nerdy, not cool. For example, if you didn't play sports. And this movie traffics in all of those stereotypes, right? If you play sports, you're not smart and so on. And Booksmart's obviously going to try and completely overturn that. I think with Revenge of the Nerds, the question then becomes, what do we make of... Even if, as you're saying, I agree with Herschel, it wears its heart and its sleeve. Because, you know, Anthony Edwards makes this big statement, I'm a nerd and I'm proud to be one. Who else wants to join me? And everyone, you know, it's a standard ending to a movie, right? I accept that. Except then the question becomes, but what is the representation really showing us? And you do have problematic scenes. Like Mm. the nerds who are so subjugated by the jocks and the popular people start to become their own kinds of predators. And, you know, they start to do abuse to to others, right? (laughs) They do. And so there's this interesting tension between, hey, we want to just be taken to be good, decent people because we're all different. Why can't we just respect and hang out with each other? Except I'm also going to stick cameras in the dorm yeah, room. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that, that is unfortunate. So I agree that's unfortunate. Yeah, but this film but, isn't like Animal Farm. It's not an allegory mm. that says, oh, yeah, if you get power, you might turn bad. Mm. It's just like, fuck, yeah, you guys nailed this. You got to see a whole bunch of chicks naked. Well done. It's like mm. their reward. It's not like saying, oh, you guys have learned a lesson. I'm not saying it's yeah. not problematic because you've also got a child in the room as they're commenting. <laughs> on. No, but you know, Craig, that's a great it's point so you made. mental. Because the irony of this is mm. you get the reward seeing all these women naked, being yeah, a voyeur, yeah. and, and you kind of win by doing this abuse. But you also learn a lesson. And I guess that's what I'm saying. Is Who learned a lesson? Because at the end, the the lesson is we can be nerds in ourselves. But but, but the point there, is that that's not I, a good. That, well, hang on. But what's the lesson about? Oh, we'll probably don't film women naked. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is, yeah. the movie has it both ways. It's running that's these right. parallel tracks, mm. and I think this you see a lot in a lot of kind of B grade, um, you know, comedy and exploitation movies where there's a kind of moral thing, mm. but at the same time, the you know that idea of the the tools of the artists, so that you can try and say something, but what about the way that you try to say it? What if that's <laughs> questionable? And so what the movie's trying to say to us is we can all learn to kind of accept each other for who we are, except the tools by which this happens just involves, you know, a guy sure. that's going to, um, to be honest, re- what's it called? Deceptively rape a woman. Right, in, no, in, in, no, which which apparently I read well, became a very controversial and, scene. And the director and ra- the writers have a, yes, apologized, apologized for it, and they've gone, that was a bit rough. So we're talking about the affirmation of the. So the nerd affirms his own status mm. by having sex with a woman who thinks he's somebody else, and for him, that's a rite of passage. But the the final irony of all of this is for her. That's the rape is a rite of passage for her in that she learns that nerds are cool. <laughs> no, but if you, if you think about the politics of that, that well, is some serious messed up stuff. No, right? but we, yeah, and I completely agree with you. So obviously, that's 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 shocking. You know, I was telling Bruce that I had coffee with a, a friend of mine, a, a student that I used to tutor, and and he said, yeah, but it's. It's a problematic film, isn't it? Um, with that, that scene. Um, and so so he'd, see, he'd seen it before. Yes, I yeah. mean he's, a, he's one of those kids who knows he knows a lot of stuff. So he, he goes, yes, but it's it's problematic though that that scene. 
I completely agree with that. But if we were to take a lens to 1980 to 1990 films and and just look at the morality of it, mm. there's a hell of a lot that is problematic. If you wanna, if you sure, wanna. it's it's talking in the code or the the form of sex comedies of the 80s. Yeah, which that is a thing. You yep. want something, and it's and it's something that you want is actually bad, but you don't know that because sex comedies like yeah, but you can't access women. But not just so comedies. Here's how you're gonna find women this way. But not just yep. comedies. <laughs> what about something like? So I'm, I've got in my notes here. I was. Comp- Considering, like, or thinking about Stand by Me as I was watching this. Now, this is a comedy. Comes from the, you know, that that period. Which um, is a comedy? Stand by Me is a comedy. No, no, no. This Revenge has got to be no, a comedy. Yeah. Right. Revenge Good. of the Nerds is a comedy, yeah. but Stand by Me is a serious film. And there's sure. very light-hearted in parts and, and lovely humor in it. But there's a lot of, you know, depiction of the way people refer to women in that film, and and stereotypes in that film that are quite problematic now. That you probably wouldn't be able to put in a script right now. So th- this is a this is a tension that like, we what, have to what, grapple Urshan, what with. What you're asking for, what you're suggesting is we have to contextualize. You're saying or historicize what we now perceive to be like totally transgressive ways of of acting in terms of sex, in terms of women and men, and that that beca- so so a movie like Revenge on the Nerds, I think, is cancelled. I don't think you can show it anywhere. I think it's this close to birth of a nation, right? <laughs> but one of the other things I will say is uh, whenever I teach Blade Runner, this is the thing that comes up, the famous scene between Harris, the, the love scene, I'm doing mm. inverted commas there, between him and Rachel mm. when he overpowers her and many people say, well, why is that okay? Because that's effectively a rape. But you you can't have that in a film no, anymore. because male predatory behavior, we now realize that, you know, it's, it's, it's perspectivized from the male. Mm-hmm. And so there's the authority in the male. And I don't think you can do that. But as you say, Nushal, there's we are, what you're suggesting is this is something that we can historicize as a kind of 80s, 90s trope that so also you the, just saw in cinema. Well, see, but I see, I'm not excusing at all some of the horrific depictions in Revenge of the Nerds. But we have to, I think, take a step back and say, well, this was made when Porky's was made and Hot Dog the movie and all these things. And if you go into those movies... You know, these are not positive depictions of of romance and relationships. These are quite horrible things. But even if you're going to serious film, they are not positive depictions of relationships and love. They're quite male dominant. They're, they're quite dysfunctional. And I guess the, the final point I want to make is, the pur- in my opinion, the purpose of Revenge of the Nerds is to discuss disconnection and, you know, wanting to belong and then being closeted or excluded and I want to say that that is as relevant today as it was back then whether they use the vehicle correctly to get the message across okay I'm I guess I I find it difficult to 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 really move down that line and that discussion but is the value in the message that people should be included that inclusivity is an important thing I think that remains as relevant today as it was back then um, and so that for me is is where it's a little bit problematic we can't cancel a film because of aspects of it when there are other aspects of it that I would argue is still relevant for people going to high school, going to university in every walk of life. All right. <laughs> I, I, I just also want to say about on Revenge of the Nerds, for, for kids younger than us, I think we were like the last being mm. in our mid-40s, it's the last time that you, you could experience this. But without the internet, without access to pornography, society was different. To, to see illicit content... you. There was no way to do it. No. And so film producers realized that you could put it into this content. And the entire genre of sex comedies in the 80s was pretty much a vehicle to show you what is pornography, but to give it a framework. Yep. And it was in the mode of the male fantasy of this is what I want. But it had to build a story around it. And unlike the erotic cinema of the 70s, which was only in you know grindhouse cinema and yeah. uh, hidden on brown paper tapes, this was more mainstream. Yes, yeah. So the, 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 the mainstream... It was almost a mainstreaming of the male erotic fantasy, yep. and they're financially That's viable. That's point. the yeah. other thing. But it, it made that it made storylines become about oh, the entire reason I exist is to see nudity of yep. the female form. But, and I think not enough people today understand oh, yeah. that as a subject. That, which is why, right. like, we grew up, and it. It, uh, this is absolutely horrible to say nowadays, mm. but that made sense. Like, I didn't question sex comedies as a teenager yeah, in the eighties because I was like, yeah. That's what I want. Yep. And these guys are but getting also, what I want. Like, so it was it sound, a form of pornography. You yeah, know? does it sound mm. so awful to say that um, part of that whole sex comedy genre 
was the sex, yeah, right, and the nudity. Mm. That was, you know, in the same way that if you read literature of the 70s and 80s, there's lots of sex in it, there's lots of nudity. That has been kind of stamped out in ways. And I'm, I, I'm not suggesting that was a good or bad thing. I'm just saying as time has changed and as cultural attitudes have changed, you don't have Canon as a distribution company that mm. specialized so mm. much in the kind of sex comedy we're talking about, right? Like the whole Lemon Popsicle series. Yeah. yeah. Right? That was yeah. huge. Yeah, Hot Dog. Porky's, Porky's, Porky's made tons of hot money. Hot Dog, the movie. The Hot Chili movies. series. Yeah. The Screwball Hotel. So the, um, <laughs> Confessions um, of a Window Cleaner we, series. We should say to our audience that Craig is, in fact, an expert <laughs> on the genre. But, I mean, <laughs> I'm the king of the sex comedy but genre. It, think about this as part of the huge explosion of independent cinema, mm. right? That, okay, you got on the one hand 1969-70 and you got the rise of um, serious alter-centered independent cinema. But at the same time, you've got emerging late 70s through the 80s, a kind of initially underground independent cinema, which is about exploitation. Yeah, And I think, you know, teen sex comedy just comes out of the exploitation it, it comes from see, exploitation. It a lot of money at the box office, but I would argue, though, that we that we haven't quite left it behind to the extent that that we might be representing it. So, for example, how is so we've got Porky's, we've got those movies, and that is a very specific genre, and it made a lot of money, and that comes off the back of things like you know, like the early Piranha movies, um, mm. Joe Dante, those sorts, those movies, right? But then, how does one explain something like the 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 remake of Piranha? Mm. So I want to draw the line between representing nudity, um, and, and obviously it's far dominant um, with female nudity. Have we really <laughs> left it behind? No, you, well, I, I think when you, I, like, I don't believe in anything being left behind. Things just evolve, right? They evolve. metamorphose. And so you're absolutely right. A movie like Scream is made by one of the great exploitation filmmakers, Wes Craven. <laughs> so obviously he's going to extract, a, I think, an exploitation-type aesthetic to bring into a movie like Scream, which is why that movie was so important. I think why that movie kind of kept going a kind of genre that we had almost all but lost hmm. in, in horror. But Wes Craven's never going to go to the extent um, of Revenge of the Nerds, and I completely agree with that. The, the idea of, I think, nudity and sex in a softcore exploitation genre, we don't accept it anymore. I think it's one of the reasons people like Brian De Palma never again really flourished in that sort of a genre. And even now when I watch, you know, sort of great De Palma movies, say from the early 2000s, it's kind of like, wow, you're still doing this thing that is really not permitted anymore, mm. the way that people act. Or if you go back and watch the opening scene of Carrie, you think, wow, so this was a kind of cinema. Mm. Can you imagine anybody doing that opening scene in <laughs> Carrie? You know, which I will say in one, on one level is one of the most exquisitely beautiful scenes ever shot. But you simply could not do that and release that to a Did to a the cinema. remake do it? I've never seen the remake, because oh, I love that first one. So I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't like checking it. out remakes of, of that sort of stuff. All right, so Revenge of the Nerds, uh, there isn't a place for it now, possibly no place for it. What it's transformed into is our next film, mm. Booksmart. 2019, television and feature film actor Olivia Wilde made her feature film debut with this teen buddy comedy about two high school girls coming of age on their final day of high school. Set in a Californian high school, the film sees two study-obsessed best friends realise that they've thrown away their opportunity to party all the time by trying to set themselves up for college. So they decide to track down the cool party that's happening on this final day. What follows is a screwball comedy that's mostly set over one night. I'm going to experience a seminal fun anecdote, and we are going to change our stories forever. What took them four years? We are doing it one day! Oh, Jesus! The girls have run-ins with the police, teachers, the principal, a serial killer, and their high school crushes. The film was met with widespread critical acclaim, held for its progressive representations and portrayal of female friendship. Although it managed to triple its tiny budget, it was not considered a box office success, although it is loved by many young people today. Bruce, what's your take on the film? Okay, what, what a fantastic pairing with Revenge of the Nerds <laughs> and following that discussion. Because I guess I, I want to say that, Herschel, you were talking about before, well, what is the Revenge of the Nerds now? In a sense, Booksmart is is, is the in inheritance, right? Like mm. it's the Booksmart is attempting to channel some of the things that we see. So 
on one level, I see Booksmart as being very clearly indebted to that whole tradition of coming of age movies, sure. but with a kind of ribald, you know, uh, there's there's a little bit of risque uh, sex and. Um, suggestions about kinds of relationships and drugs and the weird serial killer and that sort of thing. Um, I see this movie as the coming-of-age version that we know from movies like uh, Dazed and Confused or American Pie or American Graffiti, all these things that have come in the past for an identity politics generation, the sort of the the Mm -hmm. Gen Z generation. Because... Uh, I think from the first frame of this movie, it's trying to call out this is all about diversity. So this is the context of the kids that are uh, LGBTQ. They are kids that are black, Latino. And so there's this whole suggestion that this is a completely diverse community and that it's a completely inclusive space. And if you think about what we said about Revenge of the Nerds, there's an attempt at inclusivity, but there's still kind of victimization. This movie seems to me to want to say nobody's a victim. The other thing that it overturns in the first couple of scenes, I've got to say the opening sequence really aggravated me. I, 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 what? I, I, I hated the opening scene in the school. Um, where it's so self-aware and so um, end of school and, and it's kind of, um, it, it, it's a card-carrying updating of the coming-of-age movie mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, it's so politically correct. And, and that's okay. I found that just so cloying. The scene that I thought was so necessary and fantastic was when Molly, the central character and the kind of, in some ways, the voice of the movie, Uh, discovers that even the popular kids got into the Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say that's part of the insane fantasy structure of this movie because that is not how university works in the States. It's exceptionally hard to get into a Stanford or UCLA or USC. But when she discovers that these people that have been partying the whole year and then in many ways she ridiculed, they also got into their schools, it immediately overturns the whole nerd uh, jock popular mm-hmm. uh, binary that we get from Revenge of the Nerds. So the updating is that this movie is suggesting, I think, it's more educated, it's more knowing, <laughs> and it's more politically mature than that exploitation genre we were talking about in the segment on Revenge of the Nerds. Um, I suppose my position is, I will say I really loved this movie. Right, And I tested it on some of my students the last few weeks, and I would ask them what they thought of Booksmart. i got to say, kind of unanimous, this movie means a lot to Mm 18-year-olds. I mean, they absolutely adore what I'm going to call the fantasy structure of this movie. So for me, I'm trying to unpack what is it doing, right? This movie, in the end, gives you the perfect wish fulfillment of an 18-year-old identity. Whether you're smart and a nerd, or whether you're on the fringe ethnically or in gender terms or in sexuality terms, I come back to Molly's line at the end of the movie, which is basically, we're all great and we're all going to be great, right? (laughs) And in that way, it's no more progressive a fantasy for me than Revenge of the Nerds, right? I don't see this as a progressive movie. In some ways, I see it as a very, very traditional and, and, and sort of pretty quaint coming-of-age film that I really got into. It has all the tropes of using great music, um, using uh, kind of locales like a party that everybody goes to. And uh, the, the one scene that I absolutely adore uh, was the experimental modern, modernist dance sequence. Mm-hmm. Where we, I don't know if you remember yeah, when, yeah. where they do this, this, this funny kind of, you know, art, uh, sort of uh, alternative type dance. Um, so I, I, I suppose, look, I don't necessarily want to say too much about this movie. I can see why it's very important to young people because I think it speaks to a kind of cultural identity politics awareness that we have inherited in the era of Black Lives Matter, um, the Me Too movement. So all of us, including the three of us, CDG in the studio, we are hyper aware of these marginalized political uh, identities being brought into the mainstream in a movie like Booksmart. Now, Booksmart is not Marvel. 
But to elevate these kinds of fringe identities to a movie like this is still a big deal. And I think that's why it spoke to people. Whether I think it actually um, establishes what I think is, what I would say is a believable ideological fantasy about what it means to be 18. No, I don't. I, I think that's garbage. This is not about anyone's real life, as far as I can tell. <laughs> but that's not why I watch movies. I'm not interested sure. in real life. I'm interested in what's the nature of a fantasy that, that, that you can project onto my life. And in that sense, I absolutely loved the fantasy this was projecting. I love this movie a lot. Yeah. I saw it in a cinema, um, a small cinema, Dendi, with, you know, whatever the 50 seats there are in those Yeah, cinemas. yeah, those little ones. Yeah, with a whole bunch of 20-year-olds and a group of 20-year-old friends that I know yeah. and they were loving it they were yeah, laughing yeah. non-stop and they were, a lot of the, those people um, queer identifying and yeah, yeah. are diverse and so they're the whole thing they could laugh and at no point was there that moment where you feel shit because cinema is saying something that you're not do you know what I mean? they, everything was their it's fantasy totally inclusivity. they totally right, loved yeah. it and it was just the most joyous experience and then really? watching it again That's I was nice like I, I could plug into that joy again you know yeah, yeah. and I think to take up on your point, there's a moment in the film where I thought this is a different film or this is different to what I expect. And it's where she's hiding in the toilet, Molly, and and yeah. people are over she overhears people talking about. It. Now in the movies we watched this. Oh, as this kids, is the scene I was talking about. I know, yeah, toilet, yeah. Yes. But just before that, there's the scene big be, be, before they find out about the Ivy League, mm. moments before that, she overhears a conversation about it. Yes. And they do not tease the way she looks. Which in movies we grew up with, that's what happens. Yep. In that scene, they go, "She is huge. She mm. is ugly. She yeah, yeah, is yeah. whatever." So because they, they tease the they fact tease that she's the, serious. That yes, she never... that she they tease a choice, a personality yeah. thing that she can alter. She can lighten up. She but, can. I mean, but see, that's the the issue that I have though. And and so it, well, I, could I, I just yeah, want sorry, to say that that for me that's different because yeah. I was like, oh. They're not teasing her for the way she looks, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is different. Like normally, all the films we grew up with, it's sure. about the way you look, yep. and I and and it is that that's where I'm like, this is fun and joyful, yep. and I do think Bruce, you're probably right because I think if I went out back to St Clair or Mount Druid or where we grew up, a kid hiding in a toilet overhearing people is not going to hear things about mm, their choices are a bit. Weird. Mm. They're probably no, going to hear exactly horrible it, cultural. That's slurs. what I mean. I found this. I had such an amazing time. I, I thought it was really joyful. I've got to say, the Amy character. Yeah. That is one of the most beautiful performances. Yeah. I mean, everyone loves Molly, and I get that. And apparently, she Molly's got nominated fun. for a Golden yeah, Globe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's Joni Hill's sister. Is that okay? Mm. And but the introspection of Amy and that performance, and just the. The sheer honesty of it, I thought yeah. was so I beautiful. I cry a lot. I thought she stuff. was beautiful, yeah. right? She's yeah. amazing. Um, She's amazing in a few things. I so I thought that was one. So that's so Craig. I, I in fact, our reading is exactly the same. I found mm. this a really joyful movie, but I, I maybe it's because I'm I'm in my mid forties. I sort of <laughs> compartmentalize it from that's what I think the experience of youth is. I think the experience of growing up is actually um, traumatic. I think it's it's not. I, mean, I don't mean like <laughs> no, you're, I know you're you ramming mean, your head into a wall. But for example, my experience of going through school when I was say seven, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen was not everyone going, "Hey, you're all right. You're going to be all right." No one ever said that to me. But I do, do know, think this film still has some sort of trauma narratives with love, yeah. with being disappointed, with finding out that you know. It does have emo depictions of emotional difficulty, and and I think that's valuable. I think that's always valuable in depiction. I guess I, I probably have four or five scenes scenes in this movie where I think they're absolutely beautiful and they're mm. wonderful. Like for example, I love when they're playing the Righteous Brothers at the end. Yeah, and and Actually, that, don't step on that. That's my mise en scene. No, and so. I, I love that's your mise en scene because <laughs> yeah. I'm going to contrast that with the Revenge of the Nerds yeah, yeah, final yeah. scene because I think they play really well together. You mean mm. with the kind of psychedelic music, the, the the trance music? No, no, no. I'm talking about oh. Anthony Edwards' speech and everyone just jumps and he comes up. Is anyway, we'll oh, get yeah, to yeah. it. So about six weeks ago, uh, my son and I, Lockie, we went to watch a Penrith Panthers football game. Western Sydney, Penrith Park. And we were sitting in the area with young people. It's obviously something that people do, you know, as an outing um, at Penrith Park. And what I saw then was very different to what Booksmart is depicting. So I see this as a very niche depiction mm -hmm. of what it is to be in a relationship, what it is to be 18 years old. They are not going through that same thing. They're not going to get jobs at Google. And even if they were dumb at school, They've never, they don't even know that you can't even see Google at a high school careers fair. 
So it's a completely different depiction. So for me, Revenge of the Nerds has an inclusivity and a depiction that, that sort of crosses boundaries more than Booksmart. But is it wonderful to depict people who are, are finding a place and having different kinds of conversations? I think there's incredible value in that. And the performances are, are lovely. I kept thinking super bad and book smart, mm. especially in the opening five, ten minutes uh, of the school scene. Um, but I couldn't connect with it. And that's because, Bruce, as you say, like we're, f- we're mid 40s, right? Mm. And, and I didn't have this experience. So I'm trying to understand it. And I'm certainly trying to feel an emotion, an emotional response to it. And I get that in places. But when I take a step back, I can't connect with the overarching idea behind it. As you say that, it does remind – there is a class thing at play. You know, the kids in Booksmart, they're at a pretty cool California It's like an Ivy League school, school right? You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Even – I think maybe are the kids in Booksmart more privileged than the, the nerds' kids? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe mm. they're both – I think so. Well, look, I, I look at it like this. I don't – you know, my position is movies don't have a responsibility – to politically solve the world's problems, mm-hmm. right? So in the same way that I, that I suggested before, Revenge of the Nerds might be progressive in certain ways because it does ask for inclusivity and people connecting with each other, but it's still a very misogynistic film. In, and, and I think, does the film have a responsibility to not be misogynistic? Of course not. It's a mid-1986 comedy. Booksmart in, invites diversity on the levels of ethnicity, culture, nationality, gender, but I don't see any gesture in that whole movie toward class and wealth inequity. Now, if you take that and you extrapolate that across the United States, that's a major issue. But to my, I mean, unless I'm wrong, can anyone think of an example? I mean, Booksmart to me seems class blind. Yeah, but look at right, the, yeah. the house that they go to where the parties. First, the guy takes but, them to a boat. But yeah, she's all like of them are very yeah, wealthy. All of them are wealthy. It's I mean, like the Beverly kids live in a sort of a I guess the what do you call it the the thing that the audience is meant to associate with is the two girls' lives, and they've got sort of a normal. Yeah, they house, seem to be more in the know, suburbs. Yeah, type they're in area. the suburbs. They're all the but, valley. But the or, world of that educational and 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 sort of coming of age community is an upper class wealth world, and all I'm saying is the movie to me seems oblivious to and completely disregards class. Now, but I don't hold the movie to account for that because what I tapped into was the political fantasy on a whole different level, which is about, you know, friendship and oneness and, you know, these sorts of nice things that I don't really believe is actually coming of age, but it's a fantasy that Hollywood traffics in. It's a really lovely fantasy. I also don't think it's a preachy movie. I don't think Booksmart's trying to say we are updating yeah. the previous narrative and the, and the previous concepts, and now this is the template by which we judge um, adolescent experience. I don't think Booksmart's aiming to do that, and so that's a good thing. If Booksmart was was aiming to do that, then I, you know, I can't connect with that. It doesn't make any mm. sense to me. Booksmart is like it's a fun movie. There are lots of fun things in it. Um, I can't connect with it as much, and that's just the reality of the movie for me, from my subjective experience. I didn't like it as much. I, tell you, I, I, I don't know about connection, but I got into it. So, oh, yeah. I, I, fantasy, I, 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 the, I loved it. I, I was very emotional. Like I, that I, last yeah. scene. In fact, that's. Should we go on to mise en scene? Yeah. Well, let's get well, on to what it. What about. Let's... I'll go straight because my mise en scene just folds exactly on from what I was saying. Sure. About, and then we'll go to the revenge. So we're going to do it out of order. Mise en scene. Now it's time for our mise en scene where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first. It's Bruce with Booksmart. I'm going to continue what I was saying before at Booksmart and try to prove why I think it's a kind of fantasy that is supposed to be nourishing, right? Because the movie kind of wants it both ways. It wants to be a politically progressive work. But my my, uh, youth was not like this movie. I didn't feel included in this way. And I simply don't believe that inclusivity is kind of the nature of the world. And I don't think it has to be that way, right? I think we should work towards it. Booksmart ends in a really interesting way. And I will say that I was quite—I uh, was a bit disappointed in the ending. So this is my mise-en-scene. Molly is dropping Amy off at the airport because she's going to Africa. And that idea of going <laughs> to Africa to do human rights White work. White saviorism. Yeah. Well, so well that that's an argument you could make, right? That yeah. part of her identity is I'm going to grow by taking myself off to help people, you know, to help the other. So if you think about the whole framework of this movie, it's to be a perfectly card-carrying 
woke young person, mm-hmm. right? And I get that, and that's why people love this movie, and why 18-year-olds love this movie, because a lot of 18-year-olds in that niche class want to be seen to be woke, right? By woke, for people who don't know about this, it's like a term that's sort of progressive in, in the area of rights and culture, especially um, subordinate marginalized cultures and politics. Okay, they go to the airport. They can't say goodbye to each other because they're going to miss each other so much. They're sitting in the car. Molly's pulled over at the side of the airport. And they keep putting it off because they just can't face it. The trauma of saying goodbye. So it's like, see you. It's only a year. Yep, see you later. And they literally can't leave. And then they finally say the last goodbye. And the camera is tight on Amy as she's heading into the airport. And it's this beautiful moment where... You slowly hear the first bars of Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers, which is, which is a wonderful intri- choice. And it's an choice. intriguing choice of song because I don't know about you guys, but mm-hmm. for me, Unchained Melody takes me back to the scene in Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore, the pottery scene. I think there's a lot we can say about this scene. Amy walks off and then we cut between Amy and Molly sitting in the car and they both start to tear up and it, they're now facing the trauma of this moment. Now, I was saying to this class... I thought that was such a beautiful moment. I I was living the trauma with them of what it means to lose something so important. Mm. And you're stuffed. You're, 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 you're in pain. And then it's all killed off by a moment of humor where Molly is about to drive off and Amy grabs the car. She's come back around. And they start screaming at each other like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Let's go get some pancakes. Yeah, that kind of thing. And that's where the movie cuts to credits. So let's think about that as a sliding doors moment. We cut to credits either on their grief, which is what I was expecting, or I get ejected from the moment of grief with a moment of self-consciousness and levity and the kind of irony generation, the generation uh, Z, right? I think this perfectly encapsulates the fantasy I was talking about before. The movie doesn't permit you to inhabit the space of loss and grief and failure. It's always undercutting that by saying, hey, you know what? It's not as serious as it seems. Get over it. It's not that big a deal. It'll all be okay. And I don't see that as bad. I don't see that. This is not Italian neorealism, right? <laughs> it's a niche. It's not Bicycle Thieves. You know, in the, yeah, it's not so compared to the last scene in Bicycle Thieves. This is not mm. the Bicycle Thieves, right? So I think people who look for a kind of woke fantasy politics in a movie like Booksmart will find it. People who look for a kind of screwball comedy will find it. People who look for a kind of realism emotionally will probably find it. What I found was a movie that is incredibly pleasant as a coming-of-age fantasy because its ultimate message is friendship triumphs and we're going to be okay and I'm going to live a great life because I'm going to an Ivy League school and you're going to go do your work with tampons and so many things are for women who are struggling in, in, you know, that's the gag that they're constantly Mm -hmm, running. mm -hmm. But we will be back together again in a year and we will have saved the world just through being this generation. That's the fantasy. And I think that end scene, and one, the last thing I'll say is contrast that with one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema, which is the final scene of The Graduate when Benjamin and Elaine <laughs> sit on the bus and they stare straight ahead and they f- and, and the sound of silence plays over, Simon mm-hmm. Garfunkel, contrast that with Unchained Melody. The affirmation of Unchained Melody and this, this love fantasy, right? Because there's a kind of interesting homoeroticism between the two of them mm-hmm. that the movie's also playing with. In, um, in The Graduate, instead we get this incredible moment of ambivalence as you just watch Benjamin and Elaine and you realize, okay, it's good, but it's not always going to be good. It's not always going to be pleasant. And there are trials ahead, right? But I think that's a fantastic con- – and I think that's – your analysis is, is spot on. I think that's a, that was a great piece then. Um, I hadn't thought of um, The Graduate, but now that makes a lot of sense to me. The thing with The Graduate, though, is I think it comes from a position certainly out of the 60s um, issue movements where there is what we hope for. And we hope that life gets there. But we have to acknowledge that there's a lot going on and it's a complicated business. Mm. Booksmart, on the other hand, so the Righteous Brothers, I think it's such a clever bit of filmmaking mm. to have the Righteous I mean, it's Brothers. Wonderfully clever film. Because yeah. it just pulls you in. The way it's <clears throat> shot, mm-hmm. that scene, yeah. it pulls you in to an incredibly emotive. Mm. I'm thinking Patrick Swayze saying goodbye to baby in um, in, in Dirty, Dirty Dancing. Dancing and singing She's Like the Wind. That's what it made, made me feel like. Yeah. And then that jump. 
to where she's standing in front of the car. It's also like a dangerous moment because she's driving the car and she's mm-hmm. got to stop immediately. Yeah. So that's, the for me, the precarious nature of relationships, the unknowability of what's coming. But who gives the, who gives a damn anyway? Because let's just see what happens. That to me is yeah, but, very, yeah, very but different. See, I, except I don't think there is that ambiguity. I think it's about that they're going to go have pancakes now. And what, what what continues is this ritual of coming of age and growing and, and being nourished. Whereas the, the, what, the, what the graduate represents for me is that was the generation of failure. That was the failed generation. You know, that was the generation who failed, um, vi- you know, in Vietnam and failed in the American civil rights. And, and you know, but where, they failed against the American fragmenting. Yeah, but I, I just think, you know, th- there's a kind of realism uh, and a kind of hard-edged trauma that you see in those great coming. You know, have you guys seen the last picture show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Which is Bogdanovich. I, you know, the Bogdanovich, which I absolutely adore. There's such a hard-edged sense of loss in that movie. That coming of age is you're not coming of age to anything. You're lost. Right. But I come back to Stand By Me again. Well, the reason I can't connect with Booksmart as much is because the sense of loss at the end of Stand By Me, and that's Stephen King, so tremendously sentimental, like there's a clear right and wrong, there's a moral code and principle. So the fact that they lose their friendship, and then he says, you know, 20 years later, he was actually just, he went to night school and he got his law degree, and then he was queuing up for, for at a fast food place, and then he gets stabbed to death. Mm. So... It's a different world. The graduate comes from a different world, a moral structure, a moral code. There's right and wrong. Booksmart's not that. It's so postmodern. It's so different. I think also one of the things we've talked, I think just at breakfast this morning, trauma and coming of age usually has trauma inside of it. The rituals usually within most societies Mm. involve some sort of traumatic event that propel you forward into, you know, adulthood. And I think... If anything, Booksmart might not have that. And I think Booksmart succeeds by what it leaves out. Well, it doesn't do any of the shitty stuff that most mm. coming-of-age comedies or just one-night, crazy-night comedies do, which often have to rely on a bunch of stuff that we go, mm, or in the future people will go, mm. but in this one, <laughs> no, I do believe yeah, no, no, in right, future-proofing right. films. I think yeah. it's an, a, a smart yeah. thing to do, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. it's cool. And, but, and this film is very future-proof. But if anything, I mean, you know... The movie's super smart yeah. in... In a very sleight of hand sort of way, steering you away from anything politically questionable, because um, you're not supposed to think about class and wealth in this movie. Because yeah. you're supposed to enjoy the other sort of entrapments of of diversity and 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 togetherness. But for example, I found it very interesting that the movie completely celebrates uh, the dalliance between the teacher and that student. Yes. I mean, yes. that guy's obviously about 17 years old. Sure. You know, that's Oh no, odd. no, I think they make it clear at some point that she has to ask him at this graduation ceremony. You are 20. Doesn't she ask at some point his age or he has had to go through class several times. She checks with him. No, but see, I thought that was just a gag. Yeah, right. I, I take it to be he's 17 years old. And I guess what I'm saying is if you reverse the genders on that, it's not possible. It's a little rougher. It's a, and so, but that's but, actually but, illegal. Like well, someone went to jail last so week I in found the United that, States. I, uh, but I mean, so I thought Booksmart was very clever in, st- in steering you away from the implications yeah. of victimization and abuse. Because let's call it what it is. That's a kind of abuse of a young person, of a minor. Sure. Right? And I thought that was very interesting that no one ever asked it. Because when I was watching it, I was thinking – what is no one going to talk about this in this movie? This is, you know, when 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 that postgrad student had that relationship with that kid in um, "Call Me by Your Name," that was mm-hmm, a furore mm-hmm. globally. But no one said anything about the scene in Booksmart, you know, which I thought was very interesting. Conspiracy theory from uh, <laughs> men's rights activist Bruce five, Isaacs. Five, there, five G COVID. <laughs> men, men's five G COVID. What's the oh, incel incel activist incel. Bruce Isaacs? <laughs> Closeted in cell, Bruce Isaacs. <laughs> Herschel, time for your miss on scene. Take two. Revenge of the Nerds uses the very final scene to actually tell you what the meaning of the film is, what it's been trying to depict the entire way through. Anthony Edwards gets thrown into the pool by the jocks, comes up drenched in water. He's quite a, a sorry sight. It looks very sad. But then the irony of it is, through all this trauma, he stands up and he grabs the microphone, and it's quite a violent scene, actually, when he's trying to get the mm-hmm. microphone, and they're about to pick him up, and yeah. you look, it's looking quite dangerous. 
But he manages to get the microphone and he goes on this quite, uh, you know, an extensive kind of monologue about what it is to be excluded. And then he says that famous line, what do you, I think I don't know the word for word, but if I'm a nerd, then, yeah. uh, then I'm happy to be I'm, a nerd. Yeah, I'm happy to be a nerd. And then he says, I invite everyone else to think Exactly. That, or or uh, his friend comes in and says, if you're a nerd as well, come and join us here in the, in the mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and then, then everybody moves in. across. Everyone moves across. But And the interesting point is as if to say we are all excluded in some way, but we can be together in our sense of being different and difference is a good thing which if you think about it is kind of the moral of entire woke culture that we currently Mm -hmm. inhabit and film is full of final messaging because I also recently watched Rocky IV and at the end of Rocky IV that's quite interesting Mm -hmm. so he beats up Drago Drago gets turned into a different kind of person and then Rocky says if I can change and you can change maybe we all can change so Rocky has a message at the end of the film that's what Revenge of the Nerds is doing its message is around inclusivity and a sense of belonging, and don't be mean to other people because they're a little bit different to you. So that message resonates with me, so I like the final scene. Booksmart, I love the final scene as a, as a, I guess as a work of art. I love, I, find, I found it really funny and, uh, and moving and surprising, the use of the Righteous Brothers, and then suddenly it cuts and there's no, there's no music anymore. Mm. It goes to this final scene where they're euphoric, and then it cuts the credits. I thought that was really clever. But I couldn't connect with it, and I certainly can't connect with it in the same way that I can with the final scene in Revenge of the Nerds. I mean, this goes like, like that Simpsons episode where Bart and Lisa are going to get baptized by, by the Flanders family mm-hmm. when they realize that no, that's not the right thing. This is a, it's a, a rite of passage for a lot of people, and certainly in terms of our film and our art. You know, the, the critical, I think that's great, and the critical th- scene that we all seem to throw into this mix is the fundamental difference between in Revenge of the Nerds, all the nerds kind of stand together. When I, and when I say nerds, I mean the people who are different, but now recognize to be valuable mm. in their difference. Except the jocks don't become nerds. The, the jocks don't get invited in. Mm. The coach doesn't get invited in. They all get sort of expunged from the society, right? Because remember the dean gets rid of John Goodman and he kind of, yeah. because the dean's a nerd, right? In Booksmart, we have almost exactly the same conclusion to the film, which is at graduation, when Molly gives a speech, we get this kind of interesting, it's not a montage into tradition of where you play a bit of music, but it's a montage in associating pockets of people that we've encountered in the whole movie, and all of them are brought into the fold, just like all the nerds coming together at the end of Revenge of the Nerds. So even the most, I would say, marginalized figure, the loser who's trying to get everyone to come to his boat party, mm-hmm. Molly gives him this hugely passionate kiss and everyone starts, you know, saying, whoa, you know, you're like, you've been affirmed by this kiss. Um, the, the love interest for Amy who was making out with the, the guy that Molly was trying to get with, that's all okay now. We all understand each other, you know, and, and it's that message of, hey, growing up is tough, but we'll be okay. All I'm saying is that itself is a potentially ideologically nefarious fantasy. Because growing up for a lot of people is not okay. And you don't get the support that the people in Booksmart get where, yeah, it's all okay because in the end you go back to your really affluent lifestyles in your Ivy League schools, but most people don't. Most people inhabit a very different place. And then I think that, that opens up that other question. And w- in this podcast, we've, we've gone down this path a number of times where we ask the question, well, what is the responsibility of film to ideas and to its representation of ideas? So for me, I can't really connect with Booksmart because I don't think that's what most people go through, most adolescents go through in, in that rite of passage, in that journey that they have to make it between being a kid and protected by your parents or whatever. And if you're lucky enough to have that, that supportive environment and then making it out on your own, um, you can't just hang back and go, let's just see what happens. Let's wing it. I just, and Booksmart. Or did, you, you don't get the chance to go to Africa for a gap year. I mean, the three of us didn't go to, to Africa for a gap year. Or, we know, got that, to do that door-to-door work for yeah, a, we a did, few we days. We did door-to-door sales, sales, right, for about a week <laughs> before we all got fired. <laughs> but I guess that, but my, my point is, no, we didn't go to Africa for a gap year. No, we didn't get to Stanford. or Like, that, that was not our lives. And I guess what I'm saying is implicit in that not being your life is a level of trauma and suffering and pain. And Booksmart is super clever at just deflecting the pain, always putting it to the side to encompass you in this like really happy utopian ideal world of just being young and cool. 
Everybody yeah, looks mask cool. Which is fine. Absolutely fine. Yeah. If you don't want to feel pain, you want to watch a movie, you want to have fun, that's yep. a great thing to watch. Yeah. Revenge of the Nerds, I don't, I didn't see when I was growing up. I just saw it on TV. My parents wouldn't let me watch it. So I never had seen it until, you know, we watched it for this podcast. I watched it. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was <laughs> an insane film that swung between grossly, and I don't know if it's because it's, you know, 30 years later that I'm watching it. Yeah. But just psychotic revenge like the revenge is revenge in the worst way it's like <laughs> hey, it's called revenge in the nerds in a for a reason kitchen. you know it's dreadful yeah. it's like or and then just oh no fun fantasy and then stereotypes and but the stereotypes are hard the to kind say, of stereotypes right? but like in booksmart no one's getting teased the next day at school by kids mm. who saw that movie people who saw revenge in the nerds you would come to our school and you would be able to say, you would call us nerds. There'd be so many other slurs for yep. all the other that you've learnt from the film. <laughs> you know? Funny shit. I was actually, th- I was thinking, okay, this movie might have a message, but gee, there's, there's good armory for when you <laughs> yeah, go to school. Absolutely. You're teasing nerds. You're teasing gay people. You're teasing especially black gay people. You're teasing, <coughs> you know, that 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 uh, that Chinese student who's wearing a bow tie yeah. just because he's wearing a bow tie and he's awkward. It would be, <laughs> I mean, we, well, I have this trouble with comedy a lot because I work in comedy. There's, you ha- there's a responsibility when you're doing, even if you go, yeah, I'm super wog. The, the mm. YouTuber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do wog comedy, ethnic comedy, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And he's also one of the funniest people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yes, but then it also provides fuel for people. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. it teaches other, the whites how to make fun of, like, this is a common problem yeah. when they don't understand the ownership of the joke. The people who want to make the joke, who need to make the joke, yeah. will say it. But then people don't understand the rules of ownership. Yeah, I yeah. Had yeah. the same problem with, um, uh, uh, black comedy. When yeah. what's this then, Slav? When Stephen did this awesome, or when you did Double the Fist, and you were saying, oh that yeah, when I did that, and we were being bogan Australians, and they thought we were real fascist. And I remember buying that car for the second season of Double the Fist from a guy with a Hitler moustache <laughs> from Sutherland, who <laughs> from did Sutherland. not understand that although we blew up at the end of each scene, he still thought it was real, and we were saying, yeah smash everything and destroy the world and be fascist. I I am concerned if we go down the path of saying that we have a responsibility. Now, I I know sometimes I can come across as hypocritical in this because I say, for example, that Wall Street has a responsibility and therefore I credit Oliver Stone at least trying to point out, you know, inequality and stuff like that. But, like, I think Ricky Gervais is really articulate on this point where he says, I can make a joke about this, but that doesn't mean I want this for the world. And sometimes I have difficulty with that distinction in what he does. But I'm a huge fan of Ricky Gervais. Those stereotypes are stuff that I sort of feel I grew up with. Yeah. Not, I don't, not, not that I knew any people like it, but I knew those stereotypes from a world of art and movies. Yeah. So I don't find those stereotypes so unpalatable. <laughs> I think it'd be almost... They're comforting. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, if I showed it to... Well, I, I could never show it to a film class. But Bruce, that I, goes I to your point think. before. Like, I think we can all agree that Revenge of the Nerds is a cancelled film. I think it's cancelled. Yeah. I, I think it's cancelled. You can't play it. You can't yeah. play it in a, in a public learning forum. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. what about this? We did the toy, the mm. Richard Pryor film. What's worse? Like, which one's more cancelled? I think No, Nerds. Revenge is more cancelled. Yeah, be, great. Be, be, yeah, because of... The, I mean, misogyny, the, the misogyny right? is, yeah. is bad. It's, I mean, but, it, but it's also a depiction of abuse, like, like criminal activity. Yeah. yeah, like we're talking about criminal activity. Yeah. So I think we still have to, you know, we still have to hang our hats on something legitimate and something genuine here. There is a line that that is crossed. So when you're talking about the the college, um, you know, the, the the horrible stories coming out of certain college behavior at the mm. moment, that's criminal activity. That that's that's against the law. But we watched it in the 80s. Mm. So that's why what you said before, Craig, is fascinating. I, I yeah. think it's cancelled. But I have to say, as a kind of disclaimer, I don't believe in the concept of cancelling something. Yeah. So I, I believe in the concept of recontextualizing things. But I don't cancel anything in my life. Like I, 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 If anyone tells me something's cancelled, I seek it out. Right? No, because <laughs> I think that's our responsibility as people engaged in just public discourse. It's like mm-hmm. I don't cancel stuff. So, Revenge of the Nerds. When I say, uh, when I say cancel, I'm using like quote marks around that. I, I mean it's cancelled yes. in that I can't show it in public places. I can't teach it. I can't really raise it as an example of something. But, but Eddie, I Eddie don't Murphy, believe in cancelling. Eddie Murphy film. delirious. That's cancelled. Of course, yeah. No, oh, should that's, be but, but that's been I pulled mean, from Netflix, hasn't it? <coughs> like, I mean, I, I, my understanding... I don't is know, because I, I watched it on something nuts. about three, three or four months ago. Because that is genuinely 
horrible. It's just painful to watch. Yeah. It's so sad. I mean, it's also not that funny anymore. But there's no message behind it. It's not trying to be redeeming. It's just picking on people. But I tell you what, Mm. in the same vein, (laughs) you guys are going to hate this. True Lies. The Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah, I find that. Oh, that's one of the worst depictions of Middle Eastern villainy. But not just that, the divorce narrative. (laughs) Because, you know, Cameron was going through a divorce, and I I listened to a a podcast with, um, uh, what's his name, Arnold? Uh, Schwarzenegger? No, no, not Schwarzenegger. Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold. (laughs) Yeah, and he was going through a divorce. And Tom Arnold. With Roseanne. Yeah, Yeah. he's sitting around bragging, going, yeah, me and Jimmy, boy. And they're just talking about how much they hate women. And then I think it's all throughout that film, the treatment of Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis is one of the most, like, worst depicted female figures like yeah. in, in True Lies. You know, like when she drops the gun and then like she, and then she's just killing all these Arabs because she unwittingly dropped the Oh, yeah, but just gun. also the, the bizarre <coughs> ethical take on marriage yeah, and, yeah. and what you yeah. can do if you <laughs> have extraordinary rendition over your wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you have it. Book smart and the now cancelled by Bruce Isaacs who cancels everything he can. <laughs> <laughs> Revenge of the nerds. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast app so that you'll see our new episodes pop up in your stream. Join us next time as we explore paranoia and state surveillance in Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation and one hell of a debut film in the Oscar-winning The Lives of Others. Follow us on social media. Are you guys on social media? No. no. I mean, I want to try I mean, I'm on, on social media. Social I just media. don't use social media. Yeah. Well, you're going to get that with a bunch of old men, so don't bother listening to us. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, you're probably not listening to us if you're on social media. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Film vs. Film. Take two. Film vs. Film. Film.